Welcome to Shelter Cove Online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life, that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text message at 209-340-3115. Have an amazing rest of your day. Uh, well, hey, my name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. Do me a favor. Uh, if you've got your Bible, grab them and open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. While you're turning to 2 Timothy 3, I want to tell you about a confrontation in the Bible that I find very, very fascinating. This has to be one of the greatest confrontations, like one of the biggest smackdowns you'll find in all of the Bible. Uh, it is literally the embodiment of all that is evil and deceitful going up against the embodiment of all that is true and righteous. I'm speaking about when Jesus is led into the wilderness and tempted by Satan. If you don't know how this passage reads, you'll find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus fasts for 40 days. 40 days. Have you ever missed lunch? 40 days he fasts, physically depleted, very, very weak, led by the Spirit into the desert. That's interesting. Led by the Spirit into the desert, and it's there Satan tries to corrupt Jesus. And here's what I find very interesting. Satan is far more sophisticated in his attack than I think we give him credit for. Uh, he's not a brute, he doesn't like gang up on Jesus. He doesn't get a bunch of the demons and brass knuckles, chains and bats and try to beat Jesus up. That's not his plan of attack. He's far more subtle, far more tricky. He uses very clever, very smooth sounding arguments to try and undermine Jesus's character. And that's interesting to me. It's, it's like a little view into his playbook. You get to kind of see his A game. Satan's not bringing the cheap shots. He's bringing his A game. That's his attack. Very subtle, very tricky, very smart. What amazes me even more is how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't transfigure into his heavenly glorious self, which he could have done. He could have transfigured into the terrifying glory that he possesses like he did for his disciples on the mountain, but he doesn't do that. He could have called down legions of angels to silence and rebuke Satan and protect and minister to him, but he didn't do that. He could have called down fire from heaven and righteously broiled Satan to a crisp, but he didn't do that. You know what he did? He quotes Deuteronomy. Now let's be straight. We're in the new year. A lot of you are trying to go through the Bible in a year. You got your Bible reading plan. Good for you. I'm going to guess it's about Deuteronomy where you start to get bogged down. And that's Jesus's go-to weapon. The book of the Bible, we can barely make it through. The king of the universe uses to rebuke Satan. So you know what, you know what I do when I read this passage? When I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I see this confrontation, I pause and I'm like, God, forgive me because I think I'm severely underestimating the power that's in these pages. 
Jesus speaks words and dead people aren't dead anymore. Jesus speaks words and massive torrents, massive storms instantly become still. And his weapon is Deuteronomy. Now for the next few weeks, we're going to walk through a series called our core values, who we are. We wanted to let you know this is who we are as a church, but we also wanted to let these core values be somewhat of a mirror to look in your own heart. Because the core values we have at church, they're nothing new. They're nothing that we made up. We've simply identified what faithful men and women of God throughout the ages have adopted. And we wanted this to be a mirror for you to see, are these values maturing and growing in your own heart? And our first core value today is the word of God. More specifically, that we as a church are a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church. When you come here to Shelter Cove, somebody's going to stand up here and preach the word to the best of their ability. They're not going to share what they think. They're not going to share humanist philosophy. We're going to open this book and we're going to lay this book, the truth of this book, before you. I got more to say on that in just a second. 2 Timothy 3 is where we're going to camp out today. Uh, We may jump off into a few others, but this is going to be our base camp. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? 2 Timothy 3, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Here's what Paul writes to his protege, Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now watch this. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's ask the Lord for some help. I pray just to that end, Lord, help us. Thank you for these men and women. Thank you for these souls that are in here, Lord. You know these souls. You have crafted and fashioned these people. And I pray now that by your word, by your spirit, speak to them, encourage them, train them, correct them, reprove, do whatever you need to do, Lord, in their lives. I want to turn this time over to you and your spirit, God. You've got to do the heavy lifting. I'm incapable of that. Um, Help me to handle your word well. um, And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. What I want to do is build my case before you today. I'm going to give you five reasons why we're a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church, and and it's kind of like stacking bricks. Uh, We're going to lay out some arguments, lay out some cases today why we are a Bible-believing church. Now, here's the first place I have to start. I've got to start with this first point. In your notes, if you're tracking with us, the Bible is true. This is the number one reason why we're a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church, Because it's true. And I have to start here because you and I live in what's called a post-Christian society. Pastor Ed last week was speaking about this. It used to be that the Bible had some uh, cultural weight. It had some cultural credibility. People just kind of instinctively saw it as having credibility, as having some truth. That's no longer the case. Whether it's modern academia, whether it's modern government, our culture, the very air that we breathe, is inherently skeptical of the Bible. 
We are trained in the academic circles. We are trained by modern culture that the Bible is ridiculous. The Bible is full of mythology. It is no different than any other religious text. And so when I stand up here and say, we're a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, the culture's reaction is going to be, well, you're dumb. You're uneducated. You're stupid. And so what I want to do is try to lay out a case for why I believe the Bible is true. Now, it would be stupid of me to stand up here and say, the Bible's true because the Bible says that it's true. That's what we call circular reasoning. Rather, what I want to do is give you some lines of evidence that would supplement what the Bible has to say about itself. I want to be able to contend for the truth of the Bible, not just in church where it's safe, but out in the public square where people are skeptical. So let me give you this first line of evidence for why I believe the Bible's true. The manuscript evidence of the scriptures. The Bible has what scholars call an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the manuscript evidence. When I say manuscript, I mean copies. Oh, I'll be straight with you. We do not have the original writings of the New Testament. We don't have them. We don't know where they are. It's probably good we don't have them. Because knowing us, we would turn them into some kind of idol and worship them. What we do have are over 5,000 copies, manuscripts, that date all the way back to the first century, about 90 A.D., There is no other religious text, no other secular text that has the manuscript evidence and is as close in its dating and writing to the life of Jesus as the New Testament. I'll give you an example. The works of Julius Caesar, we have 251 copies of those. The earliest copy, 950 years after his life. And no scholar doubts the reliability of those manuscripts. The Bible, the New Testament, not even old, just the New Testament, over 5,000 thousand manuscripts within 60 years of Jesus's life. Do you know why this is important? You're going to hear an argument pushed against the Bible, laid against the Bible all the time. Uh, Joe Rogan, famous podcaster, uses this argument all the time. It goes something like this. Because the Bible's been translated so many times in so many different languages, through so many different countries, through so many different eons, there's no possible way it could say today what it originally said. And that would be a very compelling argument if it wasn't for the fact that there's 5,000 manuscripts standing in the way. Because what you can do is literally track through the ages. Well, what did it say this century? What did it say the previous? What did it say the previous? all the way back to 60 years within his life, within Jesus' life. And you know what you find? 98.6% transmission accuracy. The only changes are changes in punctuation, spelling of certain names, and abbreviations. No change in doctrine, no change in theology. Second line of evidence I want to lay before you. The Bible has massive archaeological evidence. I personally have walked through the ruins of Beth Shean, where King Saul was hung up on the wall with his sons after being killed by the Philistines. I personally have walked through Hezekiah's tunnel recorded in 1 Kings. I personally have walked through the ruins of Chorazim where Jesus preached to them, pronounced woes upon them because they wouldn't repent. Secular, non-believing archaeologists use the Bible 
to figure out where to dig in Israel because the Bible accurately uh, locates where these cities are and the time periods where these cities can be found. So they know the location and then substrata of dirt to dig in to find these cities. It stands to reason then, if the Bible accurately records those kind of details, it's accurately recording the other details, even the stuff that's miraculous. Third, historical evidence. The Bible's got a massive amount of historical evidence. It names historical people, places, and events. The Bible can be corroborated outside of itself. Jesus can be corroborated outside of the Bible. By historians like Tacitus, Pliny the Younger. The best one is Josephus. A Roman historian, not a Christian. Secular, pagan, Roman historian in his work, Jewish Antiquities, volume 18, Josephus specifically mentions Jesus by name, contends that people believed he was the Messiah. Josephus didn't believe that, but he says people do. That he was a worker of miracles and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Historical attestation outside of the Bible. Very compelling for how this book is true. And then finally, I want to just give you this. I want to talk about the canon, the canon of the scripture. When I say this word canon, I'm not speaking about like load a cannonball, boom, canon. I'm speaking about a measuring stick, a, a measuring reed in theological terms. It's a standard. Uh, you will hear this argument pushed against the Bible all the time, especially by people who have read the Da Vinci Code, or, or as I like to call it, the Da Vinci Load of you know what fiction book, but people somehow read it as nonfiction, as if what Dan Brown was saying was actually true. What they'll contend is that the Bible was put together hundreds of years after it was originally written, and it was put together by a bunch of corrupt theocrats who were trying to politically move or maneuver and gain power. So they left out certain books that were inconvenient. They edited certain books that were inconvenient. They kind of whittled this thing down to serve their own political ends. Once again, that would be very compelling if it wasn't for the fact that from the very beginning of the church, we see the early church fathers and leaders wrestling with how do we identify what is scripture and what isn't. And there's no grand political agenda. They were very upfront with how they were deciding what was, what was uh, pure scripture and what wasn't. Here's what they did. I'll, I'll tell you, it's very logical. They contended if a book is written by an apostle, somebody who actually saw Jesus, studied under Jesus, then it's probably true. If this book was accepted by the early church, accepted by people who actually heard the teachings of Jesus, like when Matthew got pushed out, there were people still alive who actually heard the Sermon on the Mount. They were like, I was on the mountainside when Jesus said this. This is accurate. This is what he said. Was it written by an apostle, accepted by the early church, is it transformative? Does it genuinely change a person's heart? Or is it just a bunch of weird, random stories? You see, like, you have these gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. They're written hundreds and hundreds of years later, not accepted by the early church. And, and when you read them, you can see a distinct difference from the character of the, of the New Testament. They're full of, like, silly fables, silly stories. Jesus like picking up a rock and throws it, turns into a dove. So what? 
There's no power in there. There's no actual teaching in it. They were not deciding what's scripture. They were simply recognizing what's scripture. Pastor Scott has a great illustration. He says, a, a miner doesn't go into the ground and bring out a rock and go, I declare this rock to be gold. No, they simply go, oh, that's gold. I recognize this is gold. That's all the early church was doing. The Bible's true. This isn't a bunch of uh, mythology that we've deluded ourselves into believing. There's real compelling evidence outside of this book to contend for its truthfulness. The Bible's true. Second in your notes. The Bible is supernaturally inspired. That's what our text just said here. Our text said here in verse 15, 16 rather, all scripture is breathed out by God. Pasa grafe theonustos. Every word breathed out by God. What we mean by this is that God is the real mind behind this book. God used man to write down these words, but it is not a, it is not a work of man's own intellect. Lewis Sperry Schaefer said that the Bible is not a book man would write if he could or could write if he would. And once again, it does me no good to say the Bible's supernaturally inspired because the Bible says it's supernaturally inspired. That's circular. That does me no good in the public square. Let me try to contend for you then real reason, real evidence why I believe this book has the mark of divinity on it. The existence of prophecy. This book predicts the future all over the place. Some of it's come to pass, some of it not yet. Let me tell you about just one stream of prophecy. Messianic. Prophecies about Jesus. Prophecies about the Messiah. And I'll just give you, I'll give you eight. And because we have manuscripts, especially of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic texts, we can academically prove the, the prophecies I'm about to say to you were written at least 700 years before the life of Jesus. I've got eight. Number one, Genesis 3, the Messiah will be born of a woman. Genesis 49, that woman will come from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah 7, that woman is going to be a virgin. She'll be a virgin. She'll give birth to a son. The Messiah will be a male. And that son will have the name Emmanuel. Micah chapter five, that woman who's of the tribe of Judah, who will be a virgin, she's gonna give birth in Bethlehem. Do you see how specific this is starting to get? Now watch, it's gonna get even crazier. Zechariah 11. Zechariah 11, the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that money will be given to someone or something named Potter. You can read about how Judas fulfilled that. Six, Isaiah 53, the Messiah's hands and feet will be pierced. Isaiah predicting a form of capital punishment that didn't even exist at the time he wrote it. Seven, Psalm 22, the Messiah's clothes will be gambled for. You can read about how the Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garments. Number eight, Psalm 34, the Messiah's bones will not be broken. 
The Roman soldiers went up to the two criminals on Jesus' sides with clubs. They broke their legs so that they would finally die. The way you die on a cross is not by bleeding out, it's by suffocation. You push up with your legs to breathe and then you fall back down. So they break the legs so you can't breathe anymore. They went up club in hand to Jesus and realized he was already dead. Now, a scholar calculated, what are the odds of just these eight prophecies coming to pass by random dumb luck? And you know what he found? Conservatively, the odds of this happening by dumb luck are one in 10 to the 17th power. I'm way too stupid to know what that means. So he put it into dumb Chad terms. And here's what he said. Cover the state of Texas two feet high with silver dollars. You ever drove through the state of Texas? Feels like somebody's playing a prank on you. It never ends. <laughs> Cover the entire state two feet high with silver dollars. Take one of those silver dollars, mark an X on it, hide it in the pile, stir the whole pile up, blindfold somebody, send them out into the pile. They have one chance to find that silver dollar. Those are the odds of eight coming to pass. A conservative reading of the Bible will yield you about a hundred prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I gave you eight. How do you account for that? How do you explain that? By natural terms, how do you explain such predictive accuracy? Mankind has never been able to predict the future. Not with that kind of specificity, not with that kind of accuracy. Did the writers of the Old Testament just get really, 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 really lucky? Or is there a divine mind behind it? You tell me what sounds more reasonable. Number three, the word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient, specifically sufficient to teach us about salvation and sufficient to train us in righteousness. We'll talk about salvation here. In 15, Paul says to Timothy, and know how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So we need to chat here. We need to chat about how people are genuinely saved because you're getting lied to. Secular humanism, all man-made religions, they're going to preach a version, the same version, but just packaged slightly different. Here's what they're going to say. In order for you to be saved, in order for you to fix the problems of the world, in order for you to create utopia here on earth, you need to be a better version of yourself. You need to meditate more, you need to eat more spinach, you need to do more yoga, you need to be more flexible, you need to uh, serve more, you need to donate more to charity, you need to leverage technology to become a better version of yourself. All man-made religions are teaching that, all secular humanism is teaching that. You need to be better. The Bible could not be further from that. The Bible could not be more on the other end of the spectrum. Because here's what the Bible says. You're never going to be good enough. In fact, you're rotten to the core. By your birth, you're an object of God's wrath. That's Ephesians 2. That's offensive. Out of the womb, you are instinctively rebellious. But listen, every parent of a two-year-old said amen because they've seen it. 
we are instinctively rebellious towards God. We worship his stuff instead of him. We worship the gifts he gives us instead of him. The Bible calls it idolatry. We make functional saviors out of things like money, food, drink, sex, play, diversion, joy, toys, homes, family, sports, whatever, man, you fill in the gap, work. All these idols whisper to us, if you just get a little more, then you'll be fulfilled. You, you just need a little more money, then you'll be fulfilled. Just a little more sex, then you'll be fulfilled. Just a, one more shot, man, one more bong, then you'll be fulfilled. And it's a lie. You know it's a lie. You've experienced it, right? You've gotten more of what you already had. You've made more money. You've had more sex. You've partied harder. You've got more achievements at work, more achievements in school. And it was cool for a little bit. It quenched you for a little bit, but then it evaporated. Did it not? And you were left still wanting more. That's because God's put eternity into your hearts. He has put eternity into the soul of man. And there's only one who can quench it. There's only one who can fulfill that. So here's what happens. We believe the lies of these idols. They consistently let us down. They consistently break their promises. We become disillusioned. We become bitter because it's not fixing what we think it should fix. We lash out at others. They lash out at us because they're getting let down just like we are. And on this downward death spiral, we go until we die. And then God goes, well, I'm simply going to grant you what you made your whole life about. You wanted separation from me. Why would I bring you into heaven with me? You spent 80 years on your life pushing me away. Okay, you can have it now. You can have it in full. Jesus breaks the cycle. Jesus knowing full well we could never be good enough. Jesus knowing full well that our righteousness is like filthy rags comes down to pay the penalty for us. He pays the just legal demand for us goes to the cross and all my idolatry, all the times that I worshiped and served created things instead of the creator, all that guilt and all that penalty is lifted off of me and penalized vicariously on the body of Christ so that all my guilt and all my shame is wiped clean. Chad, you don't know what kind of stuff I've done. You don't know what kind of sin I've done. I don't need to know. I know that the authoritative word of God says those that come to Christ are saved, that he throws our sins as far away as the east is from the west. I know that Jesus on that cross said, it's finished. Nothing more to add, nothing more to contribute. He wipes all my sin and condemnation clean. And then check this out. He gives me his righteousness. He clothes me in his standing. He covers me in his righteousness. I'm not just left a blank state. I'm given a positive standing of perfection. This is how the Bible talks about salvation. One is slavery, man. You can keep trying to be good enough and you can keep trying to self-improve. You'll never get there. You'll be stuck on the hamster wheel for the rest of your life. It'll make you a hypocrite. You'll always have to fake it. You'll always have to pretend to be something you're not. Slavery. What the Bible offers is freedom. Christ fully paying your penalty. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's gone. 
You're now draped in the righteousness of Christ? Like, so when I stand before God and he goes, why should I let you into heaven? My response is gonna be, you shouldn't. I'm an idolater. I'm a rebel. I know what's in this heart. Even on my best days, my righteousness was filthy rags before you. But your son paid my penalty in full and he draped me in his righteousness. It's on your son's merits I have access to heaven. It's on your son's completed work I have access to heaven. Which salvation do you have? Fourth, the word of God is powerful. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, all scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable. It yields profit, it produces something. There's an inherent power in this. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'll just focus in on two aspects of this, that the training in righteousness uh, some of you know my story. Some of you don't know my story. Uh, I, I grew up in church and uh, the gospel to me never really clicked, never really made sense. Jesus seemed like a cosmic guilt trip to me. Uh, that's what church felt like, just nothing but a guilt trip. Uh, and so when I got a little bit older, I wanted nothing to do with that. I wanted nothing to do with feeling guilty. I wanted to feel good. And so pursued every pleasure my heart craved. Uh, was a functional pothead for about seven, eight years. Smoked weed all day, every day. Uh, I don't know if I was an alcoholic, but I was definitely getting close to it. I was working on it. Uh, Full-blown addicted to porn. Uh, every girl that I came across just treated as an object to be used and discarded. Every craving my heart had, it was all about fulfilling it. And, and then the gospel came in. That, that road ends nowhere. I had to find that out for myself. Jesus starts to show me, hey, dummy, I got a better way for you. He starts to pull me out of it. But there were a lot of things that needed to straighten what I had made crooked. Uh, some gospel community, some Christian community, some accountability on my, on my computer, on my devices, meeting with some brothers regularly that were going to challenge me. I'll tell you one thing, and, and it has to do with the word of God here. I used to have all over my house, in my car, in my office, I had sticky notes with verses written on them. I had slapped them up all over the place. Because I learned I'm not smart enough to fight temptation by my own power. I'm not smart enough to reason my way out of temptation. Satan beats me at that game every time. But I saw what Jesus did. The son of God, he just uses the Bible. And so I always kind of thought of it as like my gun turrets. I had gun turrets set up all over my life. So when temptation came... I was ready to go. Now listen, it didn't like make the temptation magically go away. It wasn't like I just floated on clouds with angels singing behind me. It was still tough. Still times I fell. But I felt like I had something to swing back with. Proverbs 6. He who commits adultery lacks wisdom. Whoever does so destroys himself. Proverbs 20, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. Who's ever led astray by them is not wise. First Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
Galatians 5, so I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Cocked and loaded, man, I had this all over. And all, all I had to do was just look, God help me. The word of God's powerful. It's powerful to fight temptation. It's powerful to train you in righteousness, to make you more like Christ. It's powerful to comfort the soul. Some of you know, you live long enough and life will make you bleed, man. Life will devastate you. You will have dark nights of the soul as a Christian. Being a Christian doesn't mean everything's gonna go smooth. There will be nights you weep until your ribs hurt. But the word of God has this way of comforting the heart. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. You're with me. You'll need a verse like that. It's powerful, man. There's power in these pages to train in righteousness, to grow you into the man or woman God sees you as. And finally, the word of God is authoritative. This is the point you're not going to like. If you're anything like me, you don't like authority. You want to be the authority. You want to be the one that calls the shots. You want to be the one that's in charge. Can I just love you enough to tell you, you're a bad authority. You make a horrible God. I know because it's the same with me. It takes one to know one. You're going to be under someone or something's authority. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. You will either be the authority, some political figure will be the authority, some pseudo-religious figure will be the authority, someone is going to be an authority in your life. And it will either lead to destruction or to life. Here's what David says about the scriptures. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, it is a light unto my path. You make known to me the paths of life. So I can't force you, you're adults. I'm not going to twist your arm, but I will plead with you. This book is binding, whether you want it to be or not. This book has authority over us, whether you want it to or not. And here's the deal. Jesus said, take my burden upon yourself. Take my yoke upon you for it's light. He's come to give us life and life abundantly. Like, you know, Jesus is not against your joy. He's not trying to restrict you. He's trying to save you from all the folly you keep getting stuck in. And the word of God is instrumental in that. Which authority are you under? Is it leading you to life? Or is it leading to broken promises, same old sin, same old dumb decisions? So here's how I want to end. Um, how are you going to let the word of God dwell richly in you? That's what Paul says in Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What, what are you going to do this year? We want to help you. We're going to throw this number up here on a screen here. And, and just sec, if you text word, text word to 209-391-2001, we're going to send you daily reminders. Send you daily reminders, send you verses. Easy, good way to get started. I'm a big fan of the YouVersion Bible app. 
I'm a fan of it because this is going to sound dumb. It's got a little street counter. Counts how many times you've like logged into it. I know it sounds dumb, but I love stacking that baby up and I love seeing it get bigger. It's got a little play button. You can play scripture while you're on the treadmill, while you're cooking, while you're driving to work. Uh, maybe you like the book version, handheld. We sold out of study Bibles last night. We sold them all out. But we've got a list of orders that we're going to take. We have study Bibles that we can offer to you. Um, if you check out the church merch little window, get your name down. The study Bible will give you context. It will give you commentaries. It will give you cross-references. You can kind of dig in more of what you're actually reading. What are you going to do to let the word of Christ dwell richly? Because this book is not like any other book. This book is the divine connection between us and God. It's his direct word to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and, and I pray, God, that you would uh, compel us to love it, to enjoy it, to study it, to be people of the book. Help us to be people of the book, Lord. Um, I thank you that your word is truth, God, and uh, we'll drift, God, we'll, we'll become complacent, we'll become lazy. That's, that's the tendency for all of us. Uh, by your grace, lift us back up, stir us back uh, to, to dive into this, and, and I pray that 2022 would be marked by us growing deeply in your word, becoming hungry for it. Thank you, God, for this powerful, wonderful book. May we use it to your glory. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.